0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and as always, I'm so delighted to be joined by Tony Truska. Howdy! This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse giving us nightmares.
1: And we are so excited to have you join us today for our discussion over 2000s Scream 3.
0: Yay!
1: Yes, yes. Another entry in the Scream franchise, which is always an exciting day.
0: It is. And, you know, I'm going to keep saying it because it's so very true. Even the worst Scream film is still better than a lot of just the horror that exists out there. It's a trend, I guess, when you have
1: Craven involved, at least you know you're going to get something. That is well thought out uh, and is using horror as a genre in a way that clearly works for both of us.
0: It most certainly does, and I I'm a big fan, as I keep saying, of of meta horror, right? Of horror mm-hmm. that is cognizant of the genre and asking us as the audience to be cognizant of the genre. And then when you take that and then add one of my other favorite tropes, which is the fictional text within a text, yeah. right? I mean, you know, again, it's like Wes Craven, it's just like, I know, she, I don't know her, but what would Katie be interested in, right? <laughs> and then he and then he just kind of built it because whether it's misery, which is obviously, it's definitely a different form of a text within a text, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, us getting to see Stab and Scream, there's something really fun and there's a lot of rich potential in having narratives within narratives.
1: Yeah, and I think, using, having the meta-ness of the narrative kind of usurps a lot of the questions of whether or not it's horror enough, because the film and all of the characters under have a really clear understanding of the horror genre, and they're like, yes, we like horror, we want to make this horror, and so then you just kind of get to revel in that, and so many of our discussions around horror, they kind of devolve into, like, was it horror enough, What what is it, does it meet the genre criteria enough? But when you've got a meta text, it's like, who cares? We're going to play with what it even means to be in this genre, which is just, and it's crazy that like we're on Craven's now, what second major horror franchise. And this this is the second time that he's a part of uh, doing a, a trilogy for that franchise in Scream 3. And he and the rest of the team behind Scream 3, I think still have more than enough really interesting things to say within the horror genre
0: yes absolutely and i think you can tell and honestly this i feel like this is something that i can't say about all horror filmmakers or all horror writers you can tell that craven and crew they love horror right Mm -hmm. and and they're not looking for forgiveness they're not looking to say but we're going to take out all the parts that you don't slash we don't like and you're like but those are my favorite parts and i And I'm thinking, you know, since since I have craven on the brain, I'm thinking very explicitly of, uh, you know, the 2010 remake of of Nightmare on Elm Street, where they were like, apologies for that hot mess that you love. And you're like, what, what? And they're like, but we've redone it. And of course, I haven't watched it yet, but, you know, we're recording this in March of 2022. So Netflix has just released the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Just wildly critical responses to it. And and I think it's a similar thing, right? Like that we have this film that's coming out where we almost wonder, like, do you all like horror? Because I, I don't know if you like it the way we like it, but Craven likes it the way we like it. Yeah. So
1: before we get into our larger <gasps> yeah. discussion and we get screaming properly, let's <laughs> start... <laughs> Thank you. Let's start with... The plot summary or overview of Scream Three. So it is set three years after the previous film, and it follows basically all of the same characters who survived Scream Two. Uh, Sidney Prescott's gone into self isolation, um, and the the filming of Stab Three is going on <laughs> in Hollywood. I wonder if that's a reference to another film. Do you think? Is it a... Is no, a, never. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stab 3 hap- is happening, but then all of a sudden, people start getting stabbed on the set of Stab 3. So, Gail Weathers has got to come in and begin the investigation, and, you know, of course that leads to a whole bunch of wacky whodunit escapades within this horror mystery. So, let's get
0: into it. Yes. I told you that, you know, this is probably my least favorite of the screams. And it really comes down to my problems with the reveal and and with some stuff that I think happens at the end that is just not as sharp as the things that are happening at the end of of the other films. But up until the end, Scream 3 is just doing so many things so right in terms of casting, you know, Parker Mm -hmm. Posey as the, you know, the actress playing the version of, of Gail Weathers. You know, she's. She's fantastic. Uh, oh, she, and she does really s- such a good job. And this is the second film, right? Because we we have this a little bit with um, you know, the the Debbie Salt character. This is the second time we've kind of seen Gail being insanely jealous and and kind of being reminded that you know, like we may feel that we love Gail because she's got underneath this heart of gold, but it's real underneath, right? She, her exterior is sharp and and crackly. And that makes sense for her character, but there's a, a really interesting way in which they keep reminding us of that by giving her a female foil. And
1: yeah, I think it's also very fitting because Gail Weathers as a character is clearly someone who thinks she is the protagonist of her own life story as well as everyone else's life story. Yes. Yeah. So it's very, very funny to have that fear, that, that kind of her fear that that's not true, be personified in another character who also. Does that exact same thing, and is clearly living out life as if they are the main yes. character.
0: Yes, and you know, I honestly, I would have been okay if, if there had been even more of that. You know, if mm-hmm. if Parker Posey's character had even been like had even started referring to herself even more in that first person that some actors do, which always kind of unsettles me when you know actors talk about their characters as though they are literally their characters, and, and it's always that like weird moment, right? Like I would have been excited to see even more of that because I think that that that's where this film shines, right? This this like palimpsest of of layer on top of layer, right? Where we can see stab three. Yeah. Underneath that slash on top of it, depending on which one you want it is, is Scream three. But underneath slash on top of that is the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Right. With, you know, all of Craven's very explicitly pointed commentary about the, the shittiness that is the Hollywood and, and the film industry. Mm-hmm. And and then there's, like, on top of that, right, another lo- sort of layer, which is the just, like, the horror film. And then on top of that, there's the next layer, which is the trilogy, right? Right. So there's just so many ways in which this film is just forcing us at various moments to see all the layers, you know, because they're all sort of, like, ghost layers of one another. hmm
1: Yeah. I, and I think one of the... It's interesting... Uh, they added several several new layers in with this mm-hmm. time around. Mm-hmm. First time it's a trilogy, um, and the one and I think that obviously that makes sense since it literally is the trilogy. Mm-hmm. The new layer that I think initially I had the most strange reaction to was this moving of locations um, from the town of Woodsboro into this the town of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. This is not a new thing for a Craven, as you mentioned, uh, new in. He's explored the horrors of Hollywood uh, in *New Nightmare* explicitly mm-hmm. before. However, I, that one was more explored, I think, through the lead actress, whereas this is more exploring the horrors of the production team and yes. the and the producers and how the sausage gets made. Which initially, I think I thought I had a I had kind of a problem with it because I was like I thought that the town uh, that the original. Two screams took place in really allowed that suburban kind of setting. Uh, like very, it felt very relatable in a way that like you can kind of like project your own experiences in it, living in a town onto that. It's a lot harder to do that when uh you're in Hollywood and there's that kind of feeling of alienation baked mm-hmm. in to it because it is such a strange world.
0: Yes, it's so strange and, and like you said, it's alienating because it's. It, it's foreign, right? Like most right. people, even people that are that are in theater are are not going to be in Hollywood like that. Right. Right. And I I heard a, a TED talk the other day where someone was talking about how meritocracy is is one of the reasons that we end up having very jealous responses to other people because we're like, but I'm working just as hard as they are. How come I don't have those things? And he says, like, but the exception is someone like the Queen of England because no one's like, oh, I'm just like her right she's two four and she's too different and and that's what that is the problem of this film right is that it's giving us a location that too two four and too different so that we really can identify with it and even in the same way that like you know we we have the theater we still have the theater within the theater in, in uh in scream two, 2 but it, it's not even if you've never been in theater Even if you've never gone to college, like you said, there's still so much about it that that manages to be pretty relatable, whereas a lot of Scream 3 relies on you understanding, you know, Tinseltown.
1: Yeah, and I think that that does something to the horror aspect of this film, I think. At least, and I think this was the first Scream film for me personally, in which this is a comedy horror first, rather than equal balance of horror and comedy because it's not able to satisfyingly, I mean, the sources of horror in this are so are so alienating and so foreign from the thing, the, I mean, th- that I have any experience to in my personal day-to-day life that I really was only able to get into this film as like a voyeur and being like, yes, I imagine that those are, hor- these things are very horrifying and for these in this situation. And yes, of course, like, There's something generally scary about someone breaking into your place of work and, like, obviously massacring it. But you know, I don't have that specific lived experience of being involved within the financing process of a of a film. So there is just something that is it doesn't allow the horror to hit as universally, I think, as it did in the first two. Which is not necessarily a problem. It's just a difference.
0: It is. So I. One of the things that I like that you said, but I, I do think I disagree a little bit, right, is oh, that yes, you,
1: please, please, is that you t-
0: you talked about the you know, that that this is a film where you don't feel like the horror and comedy are in balance. I agree with that part. I, I actually think, though, that that a good chunk of the comedy, I don't know if I would qualify it as a comedy horror film, because to me, if those two are not working in tandem with each other, the comedy doesn't stick, right? So yeah, there were some like laughable moments, but for me, in some ways, I found this film to be less funny for precisely the same reasons that you said that it was, you know, less scary because we're first in a situation that's very unrealistic and feels very exaggerated in a way that like isn't as amusing, right? It's like cartoon level Bugs Bunny type of amusing where you're like, yes, that is funny that the anvil fell on the coyote, but I don't have that experience as opposed to situational comedy where it's just what I feel Scream 1 and 2 give us Oh yeah. so that I I can see the, the comedic moments, particularly, again, I think uh, in the Dewey, Parker Posey character slash yes. her bodyguard character, right? Like, you know, because he's a phenomenal actor, character actor oh, too.
1: Uh, Patrick Warburton. I yeah.
0: Yeah. So like between oh. them, right? Uh, or the part that was funny was like, you know, that they're getting faxes from the killer, you know, with updated scripts. Like there were definitely yes. things that I could laugh at, but it wasn't as funny to me because it wasn't as woven together as it should have as it needed to be. That I think that
1: makes a lot of sense. It's interesting that we kind of like had two different reactions to which genre yeah. element was the was the weakest yes. one for us. And I, I don't I think that's just I'm not quite Uh, listeners, would you let us know which one, what do you think? There's clearly a myriad of reactions can be had to this film. Uh, Let us, let us know what you, what you thought.
0: Uh, And I, yeah, I I definitely, I definitely want to know what people think because it didn't occur to me. You know, it's one one of those moments of like hubris where you're like, oh yeah, I guess you might not see it the same way I did just naturally. Uh, And so it surprised me that that was sort of your take. This may sound like it's contradicting the things we've been saying, but I don't think it is. I think for this film to have really made it feel like it was relatable and that it had that same connection, because Scream 1 is not technically relatable to me. You know, I've never had my boyfriend kill my mom and then stalk and kill all my friends. Right. Like, so I'm not like, oh, yeah, that happened my senior year of high school. Sure. Right. So like, I I hope I'm (laughs) I'm glad you I'm glad you've confirmed that. Wouldn't that be funny, though, if like (laughs) if this entire time that you've known me, I've just been waiting for us to record an episode on Scream for me to be like, by the way,
1: I mean, that would almost be. Within the larger context of Scream, of we're releasing, we're recording a horror podcast about Scream, in which you reveal that you
0: had a horror
1: situation that happened very similarly in Scream. Then, then what would happen next? My door would open and go straight to coming at me. Yeah,
0: (laughs) and and my mic would would stop working so that I couldn't like tell you that there's someone behind you, and you'd be like thumbs upping me.
1: See, these are missed opportunities that the new Scream 5 didn't even consider. Um, where was the podcasting? Where's the horror and pod, the podcasting? Actually, world? that
0: would have been really interesting. So, you know, there's that moment where we have uh, Dead Meat in, in Scream, in the newest Scream. In the new yeah. And it would have been, I'm sure, that, that James and Chelsea both would have been super okay with being killed on screen, too. Right? Like, so they could have, you know, I think that would have been a very clever thing. I guess, you know, anyone who's listening, we have thoughts for Scream 6. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> Scream 6. The podcast.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, but I I wanted them to actually, if they were going to be giving us Tinseltown, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted them to lean into it even more. Yes, I
1: could not agree more. I was so underwhelmed that there was only one sequence inside the set of Staff Yes. That and that was In one this, of my favorite parts. Murder. It was so good. When they recreate that, basically the same scene from Scream, the original Scream, yes. in which Ghostface bursts through that fake window and Sydney's running around and trying to get out of here, but it's not quite what she remembers it from yes. the original Scream because it's obviously a fake set. Yes. That moment captured everything that I think works worked really well about the horror, it, uh, horror comedy. It was a great yes. send up of Hollywood and the fakeness of. And it's inability to capture the actual world, even when there is a literal example that they could have used. They could have gone and just done the house, but they didn't. They got it. It's a little bit wrong. Yeah. And so that's scary. That, That alienation is scary because you're like, oh, I know what the real world looks like. And this thing is saying that it's going to capture the real world, but it's not real. It's a lie.
0: Yeah. So I don't have a, a horror scholarship on this because as has been the case with most of our franchises, by like <laughs> the third-ish film, most people don't have a ton to say. There's some, some interesting scholarship on Scream 4. Yeah. But but what you're talking about reminds me of, of one of my other sort of areas of, of research and that's humanist geography, which is so centered on this idea. So humanist geography says that place matters, right? Mm-hmm. The difference between a space and a place is the meaning and relationships that we imbue in it. And one of my, my favorite scholars, his name is, is Edward Ralph. He put a term to, to an idea that had been around for much, much longer than that. And that is the concept of placelessness, which I think Mm -hmm. we've talked about a little bit in this podcast. And it's such a pain of a word to write because you're, you spell it out and you're like, should it have that many S's? And you're like, yes, yes, it should. (laughs) But Ralph said, you know, that the placelessness has existed for a very, very long time, but it has been exacerbated by modernity and, and, post-modernity. And, you know, a really good example of this is that you can walk into almost any McDonald's and, you know, the layout. Right. 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 Because they purposefully put the bathrooms in the same place. Right. There's there's an intentionality in that. But as a result, you walk in and you're like, I could be anywhere, but I'm also kind of nowhere. And I think that the that moment, that scene, you know, this Mm -hmm. this is Sydney's side of trauma but it is also simultaneously not her site of trauma, right? It is an artificially constructed space. And so her sense of place, her sense of meaning is being stripped from her. And the, and the process the film is asking us, we're kind of reminding us that we have built entire understandings of of places like the West mm-hmm. on Hollywood, but the West is, is not the version that Hollywood says it is right. So, so there's this, I mean, it's what like a four or five minute scene, that manages to talk about artificiality, liminality, placelessness, um, sites of trauma, artificiality in terms of can a t- trauma be both real and artificial? I mean, you know, like yeah. how impressive is that? And, that's, and it's also
1: still just like a, a like a fairly impressive, even if you don't think about any yeah. of those elements, it's just a fairly like a really well made like horror scene yes. that is genuinely Tense and yes. exciting, and you don't know where it's going to go. Yes, because I mean, at this point, when we're—I guess I knew Sydney was going to make it because I've seen Scream Five. Sure, but <laughs> you know, it, within the context of that moment, I got kind of did get so invested. I was like, well, they killed Randy in Scream Two. Yes. Maybe they will kill, it, when it would have been yes. really fitting to kill Sydney yes. in this recreation of the house.
0: And so, we, I don't know. We Who watched our sequence. final girl run up the stairs, right? Which we've been told time and again is both a final girl move, but also like, why would you ever do that? And then we see that it is in this case, literally a dead end, right? Right. Because it it takes her down to her bedroom. And that's kind of terrifying, right? Because like we've upstairs is where safety is, but upstairs doesn't actually exist either. And and that's, you know, that's just really clever. So I would have wanted to see, I think, maybe even more of like, you know how but some backlots have entire like towns that they've created like mm-hmm. that, that, you know, there's that moment where we're like, look at this photo. Isn't that like just outside this building? So, you know, they acknowledge that there's all these buildings and in, in backlots, but I right. wish they had shown Sydney, you know, walking through this empty neighborhood that wouldn't even necessarily need to look like Woodsboro, but to kind of be like, you know, this could be anywhere America, but it's also yes. nowhere America.
1: Yes, I think that's the part that was that could have been really interesting, particularly with if you're going to do it on the set of the strap stab threes, you've mm-hmm. got to lean into into that into that aspect in which you just talked about, and because I, I just thought it was just insanely disappointing that they really only used they didn't they used it for that one yeah. scene and they used the production of stab threes script as a right. major driving right. plot point. But we don't actually get to see that much of what Stab 3 is about, which is a shame because I think that would have been a really interesting way to do this Hollywood, yes. uh, heightened Hollywood horror yes, uh, that could have been really effective and is really effective scattered throughout. But yes. it's ultimately not as clear of a source of horror uh, as it is in the first two. Yes. Now, it does still get some individual, like, the moments of commentary about hollywood <laughs> Absolutely. As, a, as a system and it's still di- clearly falling in line of that like disaffirmative or that the other two screams are yes. Like yeah it's hard to not watch this film and think of think about like all the terrible things that have happened in hollywood which is also insanely ironic there's that one line that the producers in there that's like there are so many criminals working in hollywood and then you watch the end credits, and there's executive <laughs> producer yeah. Harvey Weinstein on this movie, which I think maybe that's one of the most horrifying parts. Yeah, about it this is. <laughs> is That this man felt so empowered that he could write in a write in a character that talked about how he took advantage of young uh, women and people at these elaborate parties. Yeah. Uh and that there would be no consequences. Now that is scary that this guy financed this movie and let this all happen. That's horrifying. It
0: is, because, you know, I I don't know how much of a of a hand Weinstein had in, in various productions besides the like gross hands that he was putting into the pots. But Ugh. yeah, I know. But either he read this and was like, super okay, because you know I, I don't know. I don't know if he read it and was like, this is true, or if he was just like, who cares? Or he didn't read it at all, right? Because he just kind of is too busy and in reality. But like, also, there's that element of hubris because in either version, he's so, he was so unafraid of being called out, of being, um, you held know, accountable. held accountable that he either approved something that was, identical to what he's doing or didn't even feel the need to be like, maybe I should check to make sure that my dirty secrets aren't being aired in various films. And either way that is, yeah, it's utterly terrifying. And, and and I think that is
1: perhaps the element of horror in Hollywood that does work pretty well as well. Is that like systemic acknowledgement of how icky the filmmaking process is it's not entirely original or on un- original territory, even for Craven. Right. That's new nightmare right. as well. But it is still, I think effective. And then I think also just particularly like the cojones on Craven to like, be like, you're yeah. Yeah. Harvey Weinstein. Um, you may be financing my film, but I am certainly going to like include all of these things. About, like, yeah. How do you, I know clearly, it was must clearly have been about him. Like,
0: yeah, I have no idea, you know, because I it's been so long since I've read about like all the people who came forth afterwards and were like, oh, yeah, by the way, we knew this. So I have I don't remember ever reading anything about, you know, whether or not Craven knew, but but at the very least, if he didn't know that that Weinstein was guilty, he knew of other people, right? Like you can't create a character that realistic without having experienced it at various moments. And one of my favorite parts about both Craven's portrayal of this in, in this film and Craven's portrayal of this in New Nightmare is that Craven is a white guy, right? He's, he's a white guy who's had by the time, by both of these points, um, both New Nightmare and Scream 3, he's had a very successful career in the system, Yep. Yeah. Yeah. but he purposefully shows us that what it's like to not get to be that person right and and i don't know if it's that he just was that observant or if he had lots of conversations with you know the the women and the less fortunate and the people of color and the gay people and all the other people and he just kind of knew that or if he just observed you know i don't know how he got there but i it, i appreciate the fact that in both texts he's reminding us that like for most people it's not going to be a happy time it's going to be disgusting and it's going to be corrupt and it's taking advantage of those that that are most vulnerable.
1: And I think one of the perhaps like sharpest commentaries within that is just like this idea of the unwritten rules that all that hold us all hostage, essentially. Yep. Hollywood is like has so many of those yes. unwritten rules, yes. And it talks about it explicitly, and that's kind of what horror is as well, and why, and it works within this meta horror commentary because. Horror is just a set of conventions and kind of rules that we all, filmmakers, creators, kind of all agree to play with. And what happens when you start challenging those rules? Yeah. Film, so, it's not as effective in the act in that part of the right, challenging right. the rules, but it certainly is fairly effective in bringing attention to the fact that there are just so many rules within Hollywood, larger systems, or that we just bind ourselves to.
0: And this is where I think it didn't quite achieve its goal, but this is where I think the film is trying to create that sense of, of relatability. Because although most of us haven't had to deal with the, the rules of, of film mean from the insider's point of view, you know, we've, we've all been conditioned to sort of accept these rules more globally, but also in Hollywood, right? Like it is, it is only now in the last two or three years, where people have begun to say like, but maybe we don't have the right to talk about actors' bodies, you know? And it's like an epiphany, right? Like maybe we don't have the right to tabloid report on them or to to let women be put into compromising positions for their career or to say like, well, do you want to advance yourself? You know, and again, it's not just like you said, it's not just Hollywood, it's sort of like all institutions. So that we're reminded that, that this ickiness is one that we are all hopeful in, in, Contributing to, if only by not by remaining voyeurs instead of action figures, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting. So
1: the idea for Scream Three changed so much since mm. its development. So last time, uh, for if anyone who has been listening all the way through our discussion of this franchise, I talked about in Scream Two how the original writer Kevin Williamson, writer of this Scream, so many other horror things, and of course. Dawson's, Dawson's
0: Creek. Creek. And, and I should uh, say that, like, Dawson's Creek, you know, I mean, the whole premise of that show is, is it's Kevin Williamson creating a character of Dawson that is vaguely him being wanting to be a filmmaker making right. films about Dawson's Creek. Right. So, like, I mean, that whole show is, is not only meta, but it's also all about the film industry within. And I mean, it's local film, right? Because he's a he's a teenager, but like um, the, you know, filming within a filming world. So he knows what he's doing there, except you were going to tell me, I think that that that's, this script is not entirely his.
1: So as we had mentioned, and I mentioned in the last one, Williamson, when he wrote the original draft of scream as a part of like his pitch to the studio to be like, I'm not just pitching you one movie. I'm pitching you the next four franchise. He wrote draft like pitches of Mm -hmm. the second scream and the third Scream, And in his original idea for Scream 3, he actually did not move them to um, Hollywood. Mm. It still followed the Stab series and it was still a film within a film that exists in it, but it was going to be set still in Woodsboro rather than Hollywood. It was only after, so Williamson did not come back to write this, uh, this Scream 3. It was only once the later on that it got changed to be in the Hollywood because the new writers were like, it's a part of the, like moving the characters, to bigger things you start in high school, then you go to college, then you go to Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and so it was a cha- it was a change from the original direction of the franchise when it was originally <laughs> conceived. And I, I think you feel that a little bit. And the other element that massively caused this film to change was the Columbine shooting that oh. happened in between screen two and screen three, the, there was actually one point in which the stu- the studio kind of like, so obviously in the aftermath of such a horrifying event, there was a lot of soul searching from yeah. people involved within the production of horror, video, video games, mm-hmm. films, all television shows just throughout, mm-hmm. uh, where they were like, did we in some way contribute to this horrifying event that is, did not need to happen Mm -hmm. and some people really kind of depend like a studio did kind of ultimately say that they think that they did probably have something to do with it (laughs) and as a result they toned down screen three there's less blood there's less actual violence in it it's a less it's an intentional less emphasis on some of the horror horror elements within it Uh, They actually, at one point in production, the studio called for a film that had no blood or on-screen violence at all. Wow. Uh, But Craven intervened with that, and he said, he was like, he said, be serious, guys. Either we make a Scream movie or we make a movie and call it something else. But if it's a Scream movie, it's going to have certain standards. So they ultimately did not go as far as, obviously, if you've seen Scream 3 and been listening to this discussion, to remove all of the violence and whatnot. But it is markedly different and intentionally so uh from the previous two films.
0: That's very interesting. So I think that clarifies for me uh, a lot of things because when you shared that you know Williamson originally had three three films that he presented at the time and I expressed mm-hmm. surprise because to me the third film has always felt different. And it's felt different, and then there's the other thing we need to talk about, which is the sort of like revisionist history that the film's giving us, and mm-hmm. and so between the two, it just always felt like the outlier, and as a result, I assumed that it was probably an outlier because it, it had been un, you know, just was like, oh yeah, but what if we made a third one? So so that that really does explain tonally what the things that are happening. That's really interesting, and and you know the part of me that. Um, you know, my, my high school went into, into lockdown because we were only probably 15 minutes away from Columbine and, Mm -hmm. you know, so that part of me was grateful when things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer delayed its release of the, the episodes of graduation where, you know, the school was going to like literally be the site of, of a yet another, um, you know, into the world sort of event. And, mm-hmm. and I remember at the time being like grateful because I, I wasn't ready for that, wasn't ready to see any more violence. So that part of me, the part that really was affected very much. So by Columbine appreciates their, their attention and their thought, but I'm also appreciative of what you said that Craven did. Right. Because, because that's true, right? Like you can either make a scream film or you cannot, but you have to decide. And then both decisions come with, you know, various results. But, like, you, you can't make a Scream film and not have it be a Scream film. And I, I think we've seen other franchises that have tried that. And right. they have failed kind of horribly, So Yeah, it's,
1: it's, really, it's really interesting, I think, just to consider the... This was a thing that had been happening with Blake, the Scream franchise, since it came out. People accusing it of inciting violence, people accusing it of being a thing that was going to be just insanely negative for the youth of today... And then having to confront a real life thing and then have that change the production is just, I i don't know. It's a, I don't have it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't even know t- how to feel about it because it's so vast world world, worlds to have that affect it. Because you're also like, that doesn't actually even do anything about the real problem right, right. that created it. And so it's like, I'm like, yes, I'm glad that they were thinking about it. But also I'm also like, isn't it sad that Hollywood and like the people who make films are doing more to protect Mm -hmm. and do something about it than literally any of the other systems and institutions. Yeah. Which I guess is why
0: Craven makes disaffirmative horror movies. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, definitely a, a good point. I think though, where this film struggles to, to be fully disaffirmative. So I think that scene where, again, they're in the producer's room and they're like asking for things and he's like oblivious to them and then their demands. I think that some of the scenes where we see actors or actresses being like, I have a concern, I'm afraid, and people are like, hush, hush, you know, pretty mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. But the. Even though I know it is rooted in an actuality, because we have examples like the the real life Black Dahlia case, or again, Weinstein. Right. Putting that final act inside this mansion and finding out that there is a secret underground society that has, you know, fake doors and has created this elaborate sex party escapade made it hard for us to to remember the the disaffirmative elements, right? Because that is just, even if it's real, which is just like wild unto itself, it feels yeah. so, again, alienating, right? It's so far removed from things that that it's easy to sort of like forget the bigger point about Hollywood being a problem. Because it feels ridiculous and over the top and and impossible. And it is literally not us. That's the problem in this moment. It's the shadowy sex club thing, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I think there could be an argument made that it is still disaffirmative within that. Because it's like this shadowy group is the ones who are at the top of the hierarchy. And it's pretty bad that they're the ones who make the decisions that trickle down and affect us all. So let's examine that and critique it. But it is, that's a, ah, that's me. That is me making that connection. That is not intrinsic within the third act of the film.
0: It's not intrinsic. And honestly, I think because none of us, because that's so far, so many steps removed and the film does such a good job of reminding us that there are like, that that's not our society, right? Our society is in theory Sydney, Gail, Dewey, right, the, the people making the change that it just it's hard to, to equate the shadowy group with us, right, with the word us, because it's it's them. And then they, they kind of use that, that rhetoric and frame. So, you know, I was I was there for like the use of the props uh, from various yes. movies. Right. I was there for that. I even didn't mind the continuation of this idea that like it's not just Hollywood stages, but it is Hollywood lives that are this, like, fake place, right? Because mm-hmm. because the mansion has a similar vibe to, to the sets of, of Woodsboro in that, like, rooms don't always go where you expect them to go. Mirrors are, you know, like, all that stuff. Or the underground archives. Exactly. We briefly, get that
1: hilarious Carrie
0: Fisher. Yeah, but those are the things I kind of wanted more of, right? I wanted more of the, like, in the archives or just sort of the, like, again, playing with that liminality of space. Because yeah. by the time we get to to our killer, right? And more importantly, the really rather convoluted story of the killer. Like, I don't mind that it was the director. In fact, there's something very on the nose, but kind of delightful about like the fact that he's been orchestrating this. But his his argument both about like why he was doing this because he was hoping it would allow him to make more movies and be taken seriously. Not that any of the killers have entirely made sense, but I think that was the weakest like explanation (laughs)
1: Of, it was certainly the weakest justification yeah. of the of any of the screens so far. Yes, he's just yeah. I and I totally agree. I I think it makes sense that, that to have the director be the killer, but then the other element that they lump in with him of this like brother plot line with uh, Sydney. Like I guess I knew that they were going to do some big twist because they had Randy come in on via. Yeah, he he tape, literally
0: said it right, which
1: was you know what love randy even this film knew yes. that they couldn't do it without randy yes. i was so i i honestly did feel i felt the lack of randyness i think that could have tied yeah. together a lot of the hollywood elements a 100 percent work for us here if we had just literally had randy there yes. to be to like comment on it and like make explicit a lot of the stuff that we're yes. talking about yes. here because
0: and it and was so I, a clever um, way to bring him back, right? It absolutely it was. Because when you, after you watched Scream 2 and you're like, but no more Randy, I was like, maybe, just just hold on. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, and I'm glad they didn't try to have a, a Randy 2.0 that they tried to make us love immediately as much yeah. as, So, so they made smart moves, but you're so very right that, that uh, you know, and. In-
1: it's just with the lack of that character's presence. It really is like, I think that it. It was so emotionally powerful to kill Randy in Scream mm-hmm. Two because, like, I mean, it sh- it really shows you yeah. that there the stakes are there. They're gonna they could kill they could kill anyone at any time. It does wonders for that movie, and it is a great moment inside Scream Two. Yes. However, I I've already like already noticing his feeling his pres lack of presence in Scream Three, and I can only imagine I can't imagine how that's gonna work in Scream Four. yeah as well like no randy uh but i guess we'll that'll be for another podcast discussion (laughs) it will be
0: and one of the consequences of having him already die and and Mm -hmm. also the fact that you and i have seen for sure like you've at least seen scream five right is we don't have too many other people that we can love that we can kill right and and of course you know they're not going to kill gail dewey or sydney so then Like you said, we we kind of lose that heart because everyone that dies is is fodder. Scream one, we kind of like everyone equally because, you know, we we don't know if if Tatum's gonna be the the plucky friend that survives or the plucky friend that dies. You know, we see that Randy almost dies and not and but then doesn't. But like by the time we get to Scream Three, everyone that dies are they're amusing, but they're not we don't have that that element of heart. And and then we add in this whole like, but wait, Sydney's mom wasn't was an actress, and <laughs> you know, while she was an actress, she was involved with the sex club, and then she had a child, and that child, rather than like just wanting to be friends with her, decides, and this is where I really begin to have problems, decides that he's going to um not only have his mom killed, which you know that's we've been there, seen that before, but he's also going to have it be that so that there's a sexual element, because as we talked about with. We know that Claude and Mather had sex with with Sydney's mom. But we also know that they say that she was raped and and consensual sex rarely on the body looks like rape, which means that very possibly uh Billy and Sue raped Sid's mom, which is already just all says shades of of problematic. But like the director, the brother, he basically says like I I told them to do all of this and I'm like, "Really? Like I just I don't know. I really had a problem with with every sort of element of that reveal from from it making sense to it feeling like organic to also not just having the one killer. And and I didn't feel like I didn't feel like one made sense. I understand that maybe they were like, OK, we've done two killers a lot now. But they could have done three killers, right? Like or screen
1: three, three killers.
0: Yeah. And I know yeah. that they kept setting up Patrick Dempsey, the cop's character, as, as a red herring, and then he kept, we kept seeing him not be whatever. But if we're going to have a film that is trying to be disaffirmative and is talking about how Hollywood gets away with stuff because the systems and the structures allow it to, having the police force be part of that would have made mm-hmm. a lot of sense.
1: It really, I, I agree. I think there's, there's quite a few missed opportunities with it in the third act. They really they had set up even. Yeah. You're right. I think that's what's frustrating about the third act of Screen Three mm-hmm. is in trying to heighten everything so much, which is clearly explicitly the screenwriter's intention yes. to make everything bigger. Yes. Uh in trying to do that in the third act, I think it just got so big and out of control and like they're like, Oh my, we're gonna get you so good. You you'll never have guessed this one that you're like, yeah, I never would have guessed this one. Because it's so otherworldly and outside of the realm of possibility yeah. that, yeah, I did not consider this entire Sydney's mom being involved in sex cult in <laughs> Hollywood, secret right. actress, because the, you're right. Of course, movie, you got me. You yes. got me. I didn't predict it. You certainly surprised me. But that surprise wasn't, it didn't add to the source of horror. The, all of those extra elements are kind of outside of this larger element element of hollywood because it's like this one guy this one guy is the orchestrator of every single other event that's happened and that actually kind of hurts the disaffirmative nature of the rest of the franchise too if you're like oh so it wasn't actually all of these societal systemic issues it was just this one angry whiny control freak who did all of this stuff
0: and to be perfectly honest, this is kind of the curse of the of the trilogy, right? So this isn't something that that Randy mentions, but a lot of third films in in a trilogy suffer from a similar fate. Uh, one of the good examples I always think of is the the Hunger Games series, right? And and there was a whole slew of young adult novels that came out with trilogies around the same time that had had a similar issue, and then there's all the like other films and and series that do this too. And that is like you said, we have the first text, and you're like. This is this revolutionary idea. It's kind of like mind blowing. You're like, it was mind blowing. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, but wait, it has to get bigger scale. And So they're like, OK, it's not just happening in this tiny setting. It's happening in this bigger setting. And you're like, oh, still on board. This makes sense. But then often they weren't they didn't know ahead of time where they were going to be going for that third idea. So they're like, but wait, it's going to get even bigger. It's the entire United States now. Or, you know, the games are no longer the games. Everything is a game. Uh, or we're not in Woodsboro anymore. We're in Hollywood. But the the problem is, is that they they will scale it big. But because the stakes have been so high from the beginning, there's really nowhere else to go. Right. Like, how can you get higher stakes than having finding out that your boyfriend who you had sex with killed your mom and probably raped her? Like, how do you get bigger than that? Well, the answer is, is you think about who it bleeds out onto the family of the victims uh, or the killers. Uh, but then like, how do you get bigger? And their answer was by bringing in a rando sibling who had some jealousy issues that like Sydney's not upset. She's not traumatized. Yeah. She's annoyed. And, and so they needed to either lean into that annoyance and make that be the thing or they needed to lean into the trauma. But they like, it was like, they were like, but wouldn't you be upset, Sydney, that you found out? No, it's a stranger.
1: Yeah. And I think it's just, that is ultimately like by rooting it into this one guy, it does, it really undercuts a lot of the rest of the, a lot of the rest of the films and franchises themes, which is a little frustrating. I think I like Scream 3 quite a bit more, um, we were talking before than, than you. Um, and, but even I'm like that third act just kind of does go off the rails a little bit and does, it brings the rest of the film down. with it a little bit because the first two acts i would say are you're you know they're not quite as clever or funny as or and horrifying as the first two but i was i still had it was having a pretty good time i was really intrigued i liked the i liked all the production design and within on the setting i liked all this i liked a lot of the new characters they were introducing but it really ran out of steam by the time it got to the third act
0: I think part of my problem in this rewatching of it was that I remembered who the killer was. So there was no surprise mm-hmm. there, but I also did false remember some stuff. So I remembered the scene on set being much more significant in terms of length because yeah. it was one of my favorite scenes. So I think part of it was, is that I kept expecting more from it because the parts I remembered actually were not in terms of screen time, the most substantial parts. And so I, I think that's, why this time around it, it just kind of needed to be lower for me because I, the stuff I really wanted, I didn't see as much of as I had remembered seeing. And that was kind of disappointing.
1: Yeah, there really is a lot. And I'll, I'll get acknowledged There's a lot more filler things, I think, in this one. And I think it's fun because what they choose to fill that time with is a lot more Dewey and Gale yeah. Weathers escapades. which yes you know, I'm never not going to be in town (laughs) to watch. So I was like, I'm glad that it's there. But it was also, you're like, this doesn't really add to the like larger themes of this movie. And this don't, this is really, it is just for fun. And I was like, that's fine though. In that first act, because I thought they were building, you know, I thought the third act was going to pay off. And I was like, it'll be fine, but alas.
0: I'll be excited to know, Tony, once you've seen the last one that's out, Scream mm-hmm. Four, where where you rank them because I I think that you know you and I are still in agreement that like one and two right are are pretty high up, and yeah. and I think that number four is going to be the wild card. So I'm, I'm excited to see what your thoughts are for that. But we're not there yet, right? Because we always alternate our our franchise explorations with other explorations. So we're kind of taking a, a hard pivot. For our next film.
1: Yeah, that's, that is true. We are totally leaving the meta horror comedy realm to go into something a lot more raw. We're going to be talking (laughs) about 2016's raw. Yes.
0: (laughs) So this is going to be our weird, uh, like, we're going to have a small cannibal unit. (laughs) So so brace yourselves for that because... We're going to do Raw, then we'll go to Scream 4, and then we're going to be continuing our Cannibal Unit after Raw by looking at a book. So now you have time to start reading it before the next time. And the book will be... It's
1: 2017's Tender is the Flesh.
0: Yes, and it's an Argentine book that has been translated into English, and we will make sure that we can properly pronounce the author's name by that time. So <laughs> Raw's, yeah, it's gonna be a very different feel, so so brace yourself for that like hard pivot but i'm I, I'm yeah, excited I'm, about that I'm excited.
1: I've never seen raw before, either. so it'll be really exciting to explore this text, particularly because I love the I love the director I've seen their follow their follow up film the to of the
0: I think
1: uh Tatane. I've seen their follow up film thetain, which is just. Brilliant and so, so good, which, and I'm excited to talk about that one eventually. So I'm really, I'm really excited to see where they started with Raw.
0: Yeah, it's going to be very exciting. In the meantime, while they are watching Raw and while they're getting the book, what else, Tony, should they, should our listeners be doing?
1: Well, in the description of this podcast, there's all of our social media links where you can get in touch with us there. We love to hear from you, what you want to see from us, what you like. And just also, honestly, your thoughts on these horror texts. That's why we have these conversations is so we can hopefully inspire some more conversations. So you can get in touch with us there or through our email. And also, if you get a chance, please give us a rating wherever you get your podcast from. It really helps get us out there. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, I know it's hard because I struggle with like doing the ratings and and writing the reviews. But if you have a second, it's just it makes such a difference for us, as has been the case for the last couple of episodes. I am so excited, like beside myself, excited that the wonderful Jackson O'Brien has been editing our podcast. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you, Jackson.
0: And I know it's like it makes me so happy. And we also have a wonderful team, which is exciting that we have a team of, of people that are helping to make an incredible difference, including. Anna, Kai, and Martha. So thank you so much for all of your help with this podcast. And to you, the listeners, thank you for listening to our nightmares. And have a spooktacular day.